The Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted the mountain long enough. Turn northward and command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. There are a number of things along the way that they run into that you can handle many different ways. Here, as I'm talking about remembering, right? they are at the border and they should cross over. Moses is recounting what happened. Should have come to the Jordan, should have crossed the Jordan, should have conquered their enemies, should have taken possession of the land. Doubt the Lord, get turned away, wander. Now we're beginning the recounting of the wandering. As they begin the wandering, <clears throat> which Moses summarizes quite neatly for us, but in particular, they come first thing to Esau. Oh, if, if something's going to remind you about where you're from, you know what I'm saying? Right? This, this, is, this is the quintessential history of Israel, right? Jacob and Esau. And, and these two sons that are in conflict with one another. And the fact that Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. They're now back in their brother's territory. Their brethren's territory. It's got to generate in their minds the history. Have you, have you done this? I'm, I'm nostalgic, I guess. I don't know how we would word that. But uh, sentimental. Um, I last last summer, I went for a ride on my motorcycle to everywhere that I had lived in the state of Maine in one day. Just went to all the different locations. And the flood of memory that comes in, good and bad, uh, of what you've been through and what the Lord has done and the changes. Here, the Lord immediately says, let's go right back to the beginning. Let's <laughs> Let's go to where this began with your brother Esau. The fact that he was, in fact, the favored brother of your father, your earthly father. He was an outdoorsman. He was rugged. He was a hunter. Your father enjoyed his company, even enjoyed his fragrance more than you. And then through God's sovereign hand and manipulation. Jacob ends up receiving the blessing that should have gone to his older brother and becomes the nation of Israel. And there's great animosity between this nation and the nation of Israel, even to this point. The Lord's taking them through a stroll of remembrance. They're at this board 400 years earlier. Now they've got to face that again. Verse 5, the Lord makes the statement, do not meddle with them. And it's just like it sounds. You know, you can search the Hebrew language, but it's, it's the idea of putting your fingers in, stirring up, just fiddling with. Leave them alone, right? Forget, forget full-on attack. Forget outright, you know, war or anything. Like that. Don't even meddle with them. Don't tinker with, don't, don't 
incite, right? Don't meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. That's got to be in their mind a little bit of, yeah, well, we, our forefathers, basically stole our possession. What we have as inheritance came through deceit and manipulation. We're going to have it, but we came to the border. We've been rejected. Now we're going to have to walk by their front door homeless. We're going we're to be an open demonstration of the fact that I'm still not in the promises God has given me. Think about that. The picture that's being portrayed. God's saying, don't you dare mess with them. I've given them their inheritance and they're settled in it. And you've still got lessons to learn. There's two sides to that, isn't there, right? The hopefulness of the promise, knowing God is going to fulfill those things, but presently you don't own them. They're not in your life. That'll humble you, won't it? When you're having to say to somebody, I know what God is doing in my life, and they seem settled, right? They got job and house and career and kids and whatever, and you're kind of flailing around. You look like you're disheveled. You look like you're not on a foundation. And they are. Uh, but see, our foundation is unseen, isn't it? Right? Our foundation, you know, you look over at certain people, you think success, right? I don't mean to, you know, just throw names out, but, you know, this week, right? Bill Gates. Bill and Melinda Gates getting a divorce. You know, for, for all of their wealth, right? They're billionaires presently. You know, some of us in this room remember when they gave all of their wealth away. 100%. In trouble with the government, just zeroed the bank accounts and gave all of their wealth away in order to avoid taxation difficulties. And they're billionaires again. And yet, massive problems. Their, their marriage is, and I pray for them. I don't say it mockingly, but we look at people like that and think, what must it be like? Jets and cars and boats and, you know, Ivy League and my goodness. Ah, uh, see, you live on a sure foundation. If your life is built upon Jesus Christ, theirs is imaginary. Theirs is fleeting. Theirs is corrupted. Theirs is falling apart. Ours will never, never fail. So while you might think of this as like the walk of shame, right past Esau's front door, at the same time, they're two million plus people. God has blessed Jacob. And look, you know, it's almost, you know, you look at it like a walk of shame. Maybe it's a parade of promise walking by Esau's front door saying, look what the Lord has done with your brethren. Don't meddle with them. You're not going to get their land. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. Now, it's interesting how in this process, right, homeless, wandering, no foundations, as it were, 
yet they have wealth. And they're able to pay for their needs and their necessities. And evidence to Esau that, no, the Lord is taking care of them. Now God commands Israel to treat the Edomites with respect. So verse 7, the Lord your God has blessed you and all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging. How do you like that? Through this great wilderness, these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. What a remarkable statement. I think we can all say similar things. There were times, right, where we were afraid that we weren't going to have what we needed, and yet the Lord sustains us, right? And sometimes they do shut the power off. And sometimes they do tell us we have to move. And sometimes we do face great difficulties, but we turn around and the Lord sustains us, right? He cares for us. He makes sure, right, to teach us how you can actually live with less, right? You were begging for more. God, give me more. I need more. And God said, no, what I'm going to teach you is you don't need as much as you currently have. You'll have days of great abundance, You're going to turn around and you're going to have more than you need. But I'm teaching you in this moment that you can live with less. That I am your provider continuously. Those are painful lessons, but they're so powerful. When we freak out about the fact that, oh, my provision has been taken away. And we discover that job wasn't our provider all along the way. That those circumstances weren't what were taking care of us. It was God himself. And that's what this nation is being taught right here. You lacked nothing. When we pass beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who who dwell in Mount Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elath and Ezion-Geber, We turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The people of Lot, quite frankly, are in existence and descendants because of incest. This this nation that is here was mostly, we could categorize it as existing because of sin. Existing in a way that would bring shame and disgrace. And, And here's the thing. God says indirectly to the nation of Israel, don't mess with them either. They're my children. Even though, right, from a worldly perspective, everyone would be able to look down their noses and perhaps say terrible things. The Lord says, no, they've got their place and you leave them alone. Do not meddle with them or here it says harass them. You know, you you might think that somehow Esau was sinful. Don't mess with him. You might somehow think that The descendants of Lot were, you know, sinful or evil or worthy of your disdain. Don't mess with them. Leave them alone. Learn your place in these settings. Verse 10, 
The Emim had, had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. And they also regarded, they were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. We'll see if you just drop down to verse 20. It says that was also regarded as the land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim. Okay, so just as you're reading through, we're talking about the same group of people. Here uh, amongst them, there are giants that dwelt. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Verse 12, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau disposed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. So that actually brings up why the Lord does this. And it's the sinfulness of these nations. God doesn't just allow one nation to become stronger and to conquer another just by the roll of the dice. He does it because the wickedness within the nations grows until it becomes intolerable. And historically, some of it is recorded in the scripture, but what we find through digging literally through history and archaeology is that they meet their demise when the wickedness becomes so pervasive that they're killing their own children. Once a nation reaches the point where in these cases, and it's always the same thing, just like this nation, right? The sexual perversion grows to a point where they're pursuant of the sexual pleasure without any desire for the families that result. They don't want the children. So they create ways to dispose of the children and still experience the sexual pleasure. I mean, Mother's Day, children are the result of, right, we're talking about. God wants human beings to experience sexual pleasure. He designed it, right? He designed every aspect of that for our experience, but it's supposed to be to produce families. When a culture gets to the point where it only wants what it wants, but doesn't want to deal with the outcome, children especially, that's usually where each of these cultures meets its demise. There also, you can look around, you can also look in each of those settings and you find profound homosexuality, you find <coughs> a very violent culture, you find a culture that's invasive of its neighbors, very destructive to the bordering nations and otherwise, and God puts up with it until he brings judgment upon them. And I think that we're nearing a similar state of existence here. So speaking of those descendants of Esau and how they came into possession of their land, Israel's going to do a similar thing amongst all of the nations in Canaan. Verse 13, now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered. At that time we took 
to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them, because that was the generation that had doubted God when they came to the promised land and sent the 12 spies in, and 10 spies came back and said, we're going to be defeated, we're going to be destroyed. They doubted God, and everyone joined their hearts to that fearful doubting all the men of war, everyone who would have been capable of providing that conquest. And so God said, as punishment, they're not going to enter the land. And God's promises, everyone's going to have to wander around until they have passed away, and then I'll bring you in. So 38 years until all the generation of men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them, for indeed... The hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, This day you were to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So again, the uh, family of Abraham, Abraham's nephew being Lot, and those people possessing the land. Verse 20, there was also they were also regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there. We've already read this, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumin, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they disposed them and dwelt in their place, just as he had done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in, in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They disposed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim, who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. So this great history of the people, and in particular, the giants of the land. What's most significant <clears throat> to me for our study in regard to these giants, we've mentioned it a few times, is they view them as being impossible to conquer. They, they, they are beyond human. They're supernatural in their minds. They're, they're not to be you know, trifled with in any way. And it's not until they start seeing, oh, they've been defeated in the past by other nations. And then as they begin to have conquests and defeat them, <clears throat> then they realize these giants die just like any other human being. You, know, you can go to war against them. You can actually have victory. The spiritual parallel for us is really quite remarkable when you consider the spiritual struggles we have. Uh, when I first came to the Lord, there, there were years 
where I thought that there were things in my life that I would never be free from. They, they seemed giant. <clears throat> then, when I truly surrendered my life to Christ, a number of them fell quickly. And, and the Lord dealt with them quite soundly. And that convinced me that, oh, the rest of these giant problems can also be dealt with in the Lord. As I began to address them, I it would experience defeat. And that would convince me for a period of time that that thing was impossible to conquer. What I learned over time <clears throat> from experience and what the scripture is relaying to us here is that usually when I experienced defeat, it was that there was something wrong with me. That, that usually it had to do with sin in my life. That I needed to surrender something to the Lord in order to experience victory. And when I would, then I would experience victory. You know, others, uh, you know, there were all kinds of strange and differing circumstances. But the point is that the giants go down the same way as everything else. We have to let the Lord work in our lives and not view it as being different, right? You know, I, I did terrible things all along the way. And, you know, you get saved and you're like, okay, I cannot just curse a blue streak every time I get mad. So you start to curb your behavior and the things you say. But then, you know, other things don't want to leave as easily. You know, when, you know, for instance, I, you know, quit half a dozen different drugs and, uh, you know, addictive type behaviors and had great victory over those. But the cigarette seemed to have me by the throat for many, many years. It was strange how giant that problem was. You know, the Lord delivered me from that very faithfully. And I'm very, very grateful that I'm not dependent upon that. I was stunned years later in working in drug and rehabilitation facilities and reading the research to realize that you're actually a heroin addict if you smoke cigarettes. I was blown away by that. Because your body produces essentially a natural morphine. And when you consume nicotine, your body releases a massive dose of its own you know, dopamines and endorphin. You're high as a kite on the, what the nicotine produces in your body. The, the reason it's so hard to quit is because you're actually a heroin addict. Uh, you know, I, I kept looking at it like, why is this little thing defeating me so soundly? Why can't? Well, then I realized what a giant it was in disguise. It was presenting itself as a little thing. In fact, it was a massive chemical psychological problem that the Lord eventually conquered. It's interesting how those things dominate us. Oh, I'm free. I can quit any time I want to. And you're enslaved to it like every seven minutes. You know what I'm saying? Has, you get no freedom. Oh, the freedom that Christ can produce. Let, let the victory over other giants produce victory over all giants. Do we understand the concept here? Christ wants us 
to see these things gone from our lives. <clears throat> so we seen these giants rise. Take your journey, verse 24, cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. Right? This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole of heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Go straight forward into the face of this giant. Right? This is the first time that they've had this type of encounter where I want you to go straight into the attack. Yes, it's even a giant. I'm not going to give you some slow pitch, softball approach to victory. You're going to have to go straight into one of the fiercest enemies with the greatest capabilities you've ever faced, and you're going to have to defeat the thing in order that the fear of you will spread amongst your enemies. You're going to have to contend. Look, spiritual warfare is a real thing. I just had a conversation, <clears throat> which I've actually had many, many times in life, where I was being asked, can demons read my mind? And the answer is no. They have no access to reading your thoughts. The scripture does tell us that they can put thoughts in your mind, which is scary to me. Judas, the devil put it in his heart to betray Jesus, right? I've looked back across my history and think about certain dark thoughts and moments and months that came into my life, my mind, my existence, and I could look after I had been delivered from them and think that was truly demonic. I didn't generate that in and of myself. It was a spiritual battle that I was facing. But our enemy has watched, studied, and battled human beings for millennia. Right? So if they whisper in your ear, hey, do this, and you do it, then they know to what degree you're listening to their influences. They can steer your hand. Right? If they just whisper things like, be afraid right now, or you should be afraid right now, and then you conduct yourself according to fear, they're watching that. Oh, they're manipulating my emotions. Not really. <laughs> they're putting thoughts in your head, perhaps, and you're obeying them. Okay? Romans 6.16, right? Be not deceived. Whom you obey, that is your master. I don't know if you guys are uh, weird like I am. Hopefully not. If you are, I'll pray for you. But anyway, when I was a kid, if things scared me, I needed to go straight at them. Dog, got to go straight. I can't run away from this. Dark, got to go straight into the dark. Yeah. Literally would wander up into the woods near our house at night just to be alone in order to face the fear that the dark was generating in me. 
You do have to face some of these things. Go straight at the fight. They're being sent straight into the arms of a vicious warrior king. I want you to go right at the giant, is what the Lord is saying here. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you right now about the giant thing in your life. That maybe you're going to have to leave here today and go straight into it. Here, hear what the Lord is saying. I want you to possess it. I want you to own it. I want your enemies to be afraid of you, right? Because if they're whispering in your ear, be afraid, and you show them, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to stand up. I'm not going to cave under this. I'm going to rise up in this moment. That's going to put fear in their heart. Don't make any mistake. They're going to then double down, right? They're going to mount up. But you've created the warfare that you now need to engage in. Verse 26, I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedmoth to Sion, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road. I will turn neither to the right nor the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink, only let me pass through on foot, just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me until I crossed the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. So let me just ask you a question. As you read that, does Moses sending that message sound like what you heard the Lord say to him in the in the short section just before that. It, it's, it's in fact quite opposite, isn't it? Go in there and throttle them, is what the Lord said. And so what does Moses do? Hey, is there any way we can negotiate? And, and, and honestly, if Moses is going to keep the order that the Lord just gave him, is he going to stay to the road? Is he, is he going to buy food? Is he gonna, if he obeys the Lord, then he's going to enter the land and he's going to attack. So I'm not sure. I'm not trying to say what Moses was doing. I'm just not sure what Moses was doing there. Right? Was he, was he showing us a good example in that uh, he should try to, you know, meet with his adversary on the way to court and right like Jesus is saying in the New Testament try to reach some amiable agreement because the Lord said I want you to go in their swords drawn and contend with this king and defeat him you can wrestle with the doctrinal issue that's right there because in the end he's got to go to war I see myself right there is what I see God says, I need you to sink your teeth into this problem and attack it head on. And I go, well, what I'd really like to do is find an easy, lazy, negotiable way <laughs> to work my way through this. Is there not some, can't we get along? And God says, no, you're not going to. It's going to be through warfare that you deal with this. Until I cross over the land which the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. So the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart 
obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. Now, here's the deal. This is one of those verses that a lot of my Calvinistic brothers want to say, okay, you know, basically poor Sihon, king of Heshbon, he, he might have wanted to cooperate with Moses, but God hardened his heart. Poor guy didn't have any choice. Right? Well, that's not what's being said here. Okay. Um, the illustration I always use, forgive me for being repetitive, but the same sunlight which hardened so many years ago now the concrete for this walkway out here we built also melts the ice. Okay? God is not different towards Sihon as he is you. He radiates his love and himself upon Sihon, and it causes Sihon to become embittered and angry, resentful, obstinate, and stubborn. It melted your heart, and you're sitting here this morning studying God's word. Right? You say, I don't know if I'm Sihon or if I'm that ice block. I would encourage you to be the ice block. Because if you harden your heart towards God, bad things happen. Death is usually the outcome. God hardened his heart because that was the condition of Sihon's heart. He was already a hard, rebellious, stubborn, ungodly king. And it's going to result in his destruction. Verse 31, the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. Then Sihon and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. The Lord God delivered him over to us, so we defeated him, his sons and all his people. We took all his cities at that time. We utterly destroyed the men, women, the little ones of every city. We left none remaining. And all of the critics of the scripture stand up and scream at that point and say, genocide. Well, you know what? It is. But it doesn't take the righteousness away from God. God is the creator of nations. And God is merciful and gracious and kind. And there is good cause... Many of my pastor friends argue with me about this, but there is good cause to think that these little innocent children right now who don't know the difference between good and evil, when they exit this world, immediately find themselves in the presence of the Lord. Take David's child dying, and David says of this infant, he can never again come to me, but I will someday go to him. Okay. So our righteous king at points, if that is in fact the case, and I insist that it is, that those who, oh, we, what do we say, right? The age of accountability, wherever that is, wherever a child becomes capable of knowing and understanding and making their own choices, God, up until that point, covers them with grace. 
They belong to him. If they are left in the hands of these people, these uh, this nation, then what's going to happen is they're going to grow up and they're going to be incredibly wicked people just like their forefathers. Well, why not slaughter all the wicked and leave the children and then raise the children? Well, inevitably what happens in those scenarios, and we have seen this, is they cling to their heritage. Whether they all do or a small portion of them does, they cling to their heritage and they become like their ancestors. They, they look back longingly for what their ancestors were and what their ancestors had, and they strive to become like them. So you leave the seed in place, and it regrows. It comes back. Isn't Japanese bamboo fun? Have you had to contend with that on your property? Right? We were living in Lemoyne. <laughs> and I came home one afternoon... And two of my young friends from the church had decided to do me a favor. And they had gone through this massive bamboo patch and they had leveled the whole thing. And you're kind of like, cool. Except they had shattered and scattered it all over the rest of the yard. And I know every place that those little pieces land, more of it's going to grow. <laughs> and I spent the next two days raking and picking and removing you know just leave it where it is don't spread it around so it is with the wickedness of nations it's a really tragic thing that a nation can come to the point where god says you know what it's time to just treat this like an etch-a-sketch just shake the whole thing and start over just wipe it clean and be done with it I don't say that to make light of what's happened here in the past. I say it fearfully about our own nation. Yeah. Truly, I mean that. I don't, I don't just try to say that to create anxiety. You know, where, where is America in prophecy? It's a good question. It's a good question as powerful and influential worldwide as we have become, and yet you turn the pages and we are just not there. Not there. Oh, well, over here in Daniel, if you, you know, yeah, <laughs> relegated to a place of inconsequential meaninglessness. No impact at all. My greatest hope within that is that the rapture is going to cause that. You know, still 70% of America says that they are Christians. I laugh at that concept. But consider Jesus' illustration of the, the ten virgins. So half of them are taken with him, right? So 35%. 35% of America is a pretty good number. You know, 310 million Americans, 35%, that'd be, that'd be a wonderful gathering of believers. And, and it would take the grace of God to get that many, would it not, out of this nation? But what we see going on right now, that's my fear right there. The utter destruction of men, women, little ones of every city, we left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with spoil 
for the cities which we took. From Aror, which is on the bank of the river of Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. Right? They did not think that they were capable of conquering one city. And they come to realize with God, we're capable of conquering them all. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river of Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. We stayed away from the things God told us to stay away from. It's such a remarkable thing that these people start out as slaves. They're completely unfit for war. And God brings them through hardships that make them fit for war. And then he begins to introduce them to warfare incrementally, little by little, until he unleashes them in a circumstance such as this, and they have nothing but victory. You really, I mean, you don't have to work hard to understand the spiritual parallel that God is trying to present to us here. It is that he is giving us the opportunity of victory. There are defeats ahead, and there are lessons to learn in the process, but what God wants to show them is that same statement that was just made here, that God was with them and gave all of these nations into their hands. God is with us. God is with you. And he will give you victory. But if you don't apply yourself to it, if we don't try and strive and work with him, right? It isn't by works that we see these things accomplished, right? But faith without works is dead. We have to apply ourselves to these struggles. I know we're at time, but I'll just add this thought, okay? Psychology has permeated Christianity so thoroughly that a lot of Christians rest in a place of defeat based upon the false teachings of psychology, okay? I can speak very adamantly about drug addiction and alcoholism and how for years I was told that was a disease and that I was powerless over it. That's not what Christ said to me, right? Christ said to me that it was a sin and that it was a choice that I was making. And as I turned through the pages, I discovered that he said I was a new creation. And I discovered that he was saying that he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And I began to struggle against it. And that's where the victory came. The whole time that I was encapsulated in the false teachings of psychology that said, <clears throat> for those of you that haven't been here, I just want to touch on that real quick. Please stay with me in this, right? Because it was Bill Wilson, who was the founder of AA, who came under the influence of a doctor 
who just a few years later was stripped of his credentials because he was a complete quack. This man taught Bill Wilson that his alcoholism was an allergic reaction to alcohol. We kind of laugh at that, like, oh, how silly is that? That's where, that is where the mindset of alcoholism being a disease came from. Bill Wilson, taught by the false perspective of a doctor, made his own organization, AA, and he is the one who promoted this idea of this is an illness. Someone who was not a physician, and he kept presenting it to the medical community, and for decades the medical community said, you're full of it. This is about choice. These people are alcoholics. We need to treat it this way until... Somebody in the insurance community said to the medical community, hey, <clears throat> we literally can become billionaires if we marry this idea together. That alcoholism is a disease and that the medical community is going to treat it and the insurance companies are going to pay for it. And that's where we are right now. Our, our nation, our, our insurance our insurance companies are being crippled by this right now. Because now, right, it's opiates, it's all of it. When, when you depart from God's teaching, God's doctrine, God's truth, and you start embracing the teachings of man, and you start thinking along this line, then what happens is defeat. Defeat is what enters in. You want the victory? you got to hear the voice of God, and you've got to, Take up arms against your enemies and see the conquest accomplished. Make sense? Well, we'll pick up with chapter 3 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray? See how, see how fitting a Mother's Day message that is? Uh, mothers, again, Mother, thank you for everything you've ever done. Appreciate all of you. Pray the Lord to bless your day. Father, we thank you for your work, for your love, for the families you've given us. Lord, the fulfillment of promise through these dear women, my dear wife, my mother. I pray that you would pour your blessing out upon them today. They would experience your comfort. They would experience your provision. They would experience your victory. Answer their prayers, Lord. I think of all the prayers offered for their children, the moms and the way they have poured out their hearts. Please fulfill those godly wishes. Accomplish what you want to. Guide us as your children. Give us the victories you want. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.